I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Gallant Few podcast. My name is David Tomlinson, and we're doing a special edition of the Gallant View podcast. We have invited authors from the football world, mostly, to, to tell us about their books and um, enjoy the, the, the talk about football, mostly, I think. So with me tonight is Mr. Gary Thacker. Welcome, Gary. Hi, Dave. Thanks for having me on board, matey. As you say, it's always great to talk about football. If you talk about my book as well, that's just a bonus, buddy. Yeah, well, first of all, I want to I want to just uh, give a wee mention to we just heard before we come on when we we're recording this, uh, Edwin Van has been taken into the hospital uh, with cerebral bleeding, and just wish him all the best and his family all the strength they need to get over it. Moving oh, on, Gary. Yeah, sorry. Um, moving on. Well, tell us something about yourself, Gary. Yeah, okay. Um, well, I'm, I'm Gary Thacker. I'm, I live in Spain. Uh, the book we're going to talk about is my seventh book. Um, I didn't start writing until I was about 50-ish, strangely enough. Well, I worked in uh, lots of industries, and that's, uh, at that stage I was working in the graphic design industry, and I used to do a lot of writing a copy for, for the, um, uh, the adverts and such like. And so I got into blogging from there and from then progressed into um, various websites. I've written for lots of websites and eventually got involved with These Football Times. Um, I'm now one of the senior leadership team at These Football Times. Um, came out to live out in Spain uh, five years ago. And uh, for until last summer, um, I wrote a regular weekly column for an English language newspaper over here uh, on La Liga. So I've done that and uh, written for various magazines. I say this is this is my seventh book. You can talk about today, my eighth one, and my final book. I'm retired now. It's just with the publishers now. But uh, it, it, this the book I'm going to talk about today represents probably my greatest love in football, which is Dutch football, particularly Ajax 
and the great Dutch teams of the early 70s. Yeah, is it just football you write about or, or do you write about other subjects? No, no, I'm a great sports fan. I like all sports, um, but I only write about football. Um, I, I, I don't know why it's the only answer. It's just what I started out doing. It just sort of led me on from there. Each of my books has covered different aspects of football, um, international game, uh, club game, etc. Um, so, yeah, I've written a couple of fiction books as well, a couple of uh, novels. Just, just to try something different, try my hand at something different. But yeah, even the the novels were, they weren't football books, but they were sort of uh, set in football scenes, shall we say? It's what I know best, I suppose. Okay, well, if if, if you make a list of the books uh, and then send it to me an email, I'll get it put on the the the, the connect the uh, the bottom of the the, the site here. I'll do that. So, Thank you. Um, Gary, really, sort of a. How did you get into Dutch football? What was the, what was what was your motivation to all of a sudden turn around and think I'm going to write a book about Dutch football? <laughs> it's a great question, Dad. It's a great question. Um, I, I think it goes back to the sort of early seventies, or what I'd be uh, thirteen, twelve, thirteen, fourteen. And at that age, I guess it's the, uh, the impressionable age where you. You know, you sort of see things like with music, you a certain type of music of that of that time that sticks with you, and such such like. And uh, yeah, I, I mean, I remember watching Ajax the uh, winning the first European Cup. Uh, I just it was just magnificent the the play the way they played, and then I picked up from there, followed them the next two or three years, and obviously in '74 with the Dutch national team. I mean, the World Cup in '74, they were. The greatest, the, by far the greatest team never to win a World Cup. I mean, we, we have a few debates about this on these football times and some people argue for Brazil in uh, 82, but I just think the Dutch were just, they were just like being from another planet. And they were the team that, that sort of, uh, the Ajax club team of some, the early 70s fed into that. And yeah, I just think the Dutch football at that time, um, for a little, a, a small, fairly... Um, unadventurous football in nation that in 1974 and this is a classic thing this is a classic statement I, 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 I got this stat this quote from Dave Winner and his book Brilliant Orange you'd be probably be aware of uh, chatting Dave kind of to help me with the book and he's got a quote in Brilliant Orange that in 1974 when the Dutch went to the World Cup finals they had a World Cup record equivalent to that of Luxembourg they played in two pre-war World Cup final tournaments, and in both of them, they played one game and got beat in both of them. So they hadn't even won a game going into the World Cup in 1974. So, and this is what the, the Ajax team, and, and to some extent, Feyenoord as well, uh, the, the, the outstanding players of, the, of those clubs had fed into the, becoming a team that had never won a World Cup game before to becoming everybody's favorite, second favourite team in this tournament. Yeah, well, I've, I've got also got a, a, a thing about that. The Ajax were, were for years supposed to be the best academy uh, yeah. in the world, really. Yeah. But a, lot, a lot of the players they actually brought in were 16, 17-year-olds that had never been through their academy. And they just sort of split players from Denmark, Scandinavia. They brought in the kind of players. And as I said, they were 16-year-old, never played in their academy. But because they played one or two years in their academy, they put them down as an academy player. So 
while they were a, a really good academy, they did cheat a wee bit on the on the sort of a summing up of, of how they, they did it. And it, it, it's easy for me to look through internet, YouTube, and find films of Dutch football, find people that talk about Dutch football. It must be really difficult for you when, when you don't speak any Dutch and and I mean, not, there are a lot of things translated, but not everything's translated. So how did you manage that? I, get, uh, I mean, we're quite fortunate as much as... Because um, the first book I wrote about Dutch football was called uh, Beautiful Bridesmaids, uh, Dressed in Orange, was um, about the Dutch team in 74, 76, 78, World Cup and European Championships. And I, I got in touch with a few guys from that day, but it wouldn't be one. And um, all the people I tend to speak to, even the Dutch people, they spoke perfect English, so I was quite looking. Sort of one one sort of contact led to another. In this book, I was fortunate to speak to people such as Root, Root Kroll. And an interview with Root Kroll, I got in touch with Root, and uh, I said, you know, would it be okay to talk, chat to you for 10 minutes and ask you a few questions? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 45 minutes later, we were still going. I mean, such a brilliant guy. Um, Johnny Rep, um, although I, I, I didn't speak to, him, Johnny, to Johnny verbally, we exchanged a few um text messages and more than have to speak to or cock you, you probably know but very well i'm sure over there uh, and then another terrific bloke very helpful with the book and I, I don't know if you've read his biography of cruyff um it's it's, it's a brilliant book and he, uh, it is august must be kind of, oh it's, oh, it's a brilliant book i mean cruyff's autobiography uh called my turn is, is fine it's, it's fine but orc's book is is so gives so much more depth to the character, to the footballer, to the man. Um, and Orca said was, was brilliant. He's kind of sent me a signed copy of his of uh, biography. And, and people like Sonny Saloy, I spoke to, um, Pierre Vermeulen. Uh, I mean, there's so many players, just so many players that was a few uh, past, uh, players from that era and just and just past there. Pete Vilchard, who played into the 78 World Cup. Uh, he, he he sort of did give me an interview as well, but they all spoke perfect English. So I guess you know I was I was lucky in that in, in that sort of situation. The only one who was a little bit less totally comp was um, was Johnny Rep, and that's why he wanted to do it uh, in sort of text rather than actual verbal because he wasn't less comfortable in English. But but most of the guys, well, all the other guys. I mean, Rude, for example, Rude's English is better than mine. <laughs> How did how did you go about that? How did did you just phone up or did you get email? Or? It's it's a weird thing, Dave. Um, these things don't they don't happen overnight. So I mean, the first Dutch book I wrote was about uh, two years ago, and I got some contacts then, and it, I sort of built from there. And I spoke to various people, you know, who do you know, who who, who do you think might be able to speak to me about this or that, and contact it's like a, it's like a ladder you know one leads to another and uh, it, it was oh, i just sometimes you know you're talking to these guys like i say rue for example that one of my all-time favorite footballs before i even spoke when i was watching him you know played in every meet every every second of every game in two successive world cups and got to the finals both times captained the dutch in 78 and was a width of a, of a goal post and rensenbrink hit the post in the last minute of picking up the World Cup. Oh, what, I mean, I say, what a player. I mean, fullback, sweeper, centre-back. He could have played in midfield. He had all the skills in the world. 
and I'm having a conversation with this guy. It was, it was sort of surreal. I mean, literally surreal to have a conversation with these with uh, somebody that ilk. And you know, authors like Dave Winner, as I said, and Orc, and Orc as well. These, I mean, these are sort of like godlike pe people to me. And but you know, people were so helpful. I mean, when I wrote the um, my previous book, I got in touch with Graham Hunter. Oh, what a nice guy. Gave me an interview for about half an hour or so about uh, and when he was a kid watching the World Cup in 74, when he was a kid in Scotland. Um, people are so helpful. Once you get into, I mean, getting in touch with people is a difficult part. And if you've got to, it's getting a pathway to them. But it, most people, in fact, I can't think of anybody who said no when I asked, you know, could I have a, an interview or just ask you a few questions or ask your opinion or your thoughts about this. I don't think anybody ever said no. But people just were so nice, so helpful. I think one of the things that I, I sort of, um, before we got on to your book, one of the things that, see, in the old days, in the 74, 78 period, we couldn't wait for the World Cup to come around. Now there, now there seems to be a, a, a thing, oh, England are on, I'm not going to watch England, or, or it's, 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 the Argentinians, I'm not going to watch them. It wasn't like that back in the days. It was everybody was, I mean, you nearly get left out of school to watch games of, of football in the days. You're right. You're absolutely right. I think there were very different times. I mean, there was, a, there was an innocence about football in those days. I mean, going back to 70, I mean, I'm old enough to remember. I, I mean, you didn't see it live because it wasn't broadcast live, but I remember the 62 World Cup. Um, obviously, 66 as well. I was 10. So I was 9 when England woke up 66. But in those days, it's in 1970, for example, when it was first one in colour, there's a magic about it. You know, it's like you didn't, you know, uh, 82 years to run on from school to watch to watch the World Cup. Um, but there was an instance, and I think what changed is um, watching players from another country, watching players from Argentina, Brazil, um, even African countries, from African countries, it was new. I mean, nowadays, so many of the, the players who play for Brazil, play for Argentina, play for Colombia, play for the South American teams, even a lot of the African teams, they play in European football anyway because that's where the money is. So a little bit of the magic has gone. So it's not it's not so special anymore um, as it used to be in the past. Yeah, I remember uh, my, my favourite. I always said he was my favourite player in the world. I, I don't know whether Krauf would sort of uh, get past him. Uh, it was Pelé, and oh, I yeah. just loved Pelé when he was a uh, when he was a youngster. When he was, uh, I don't think he left Santos. I think he was at the bit the Santos from the start to the finish. I believe. He went. He went to uh, um, Galaxy, LA Galaxy. Yeah. No, not LA Galaxy. Yeah. Uh, New York, New York Cosmos. New York Cosmos. Yeah. And you know, without giving right. too much of a secret away, um, I mentioned my last book is with the publishers. It has something to do with Pele in 1970. Okay. Oh well, I'll, I'll look out for that one. Indeed, indeed. Have you have you on again to talk about that one? Uh, More I, don't, I don't know about it. I, I, I need to get Colin to 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 get it right, but. Uh, no, no problem. I'll talk okay. about Pelé. Um, okay, I'll get on to your get on to your book. Um, the history of oh, it starts with a bit of the history of of, of Ajax. A lot of the book is about Ajax. Uh, were you surprised? Because I was. The the amount of sort of an English. Uh, the, the, the all most of the people at that time came. The managers came out of England. I was really yeah. shocked. I, I couldn't believe that. Yeah, well, there was. I mean, as well as England, there was, also, there was a, a, an Irish guy and a couple of Scots as well. 
but British very much. And it's 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 a fascinating little, little era um, because we're talking about the the early years of the 1900s, and basically English football and Scottish well, British football, Scottish football as well, was seen to be the best football in the world, and so continental clubs wanted to employ British coaches the, the, to, to, because that was seen to be the best football. But the strange thing is, the coaches that went abroad to work in in Italy, in Spain, in in France, in Switzerland, in Austria, in the Netherlands, were the coaches that were preaching an orthodox, unorthodox approach to football. Now, in those days, British football was very much is booted up the park, you know, to a big guy and try, you know, out muscle somewhere to score. Um, but the the coaches who went abroad are people like uh, Jimmy Hogan, who was very much adherent to the Scottish school of, school of football, the short passing, keep control of the ball. And these were the guys who created the European style of football that was by British coaches, but was very much not a British type of football. Jimmy Hogan, for example, um, he as well as working in, in the Netherlands, he coached a club called Dordrecht. Probably you'll know where Dordrecht is um, uh, for a while. And he, had, he coached the, the Netherlands national team in one game against Germany. But he also worked in Switzerland. He worked in Austria with uh, Weissel. The, the Austrian wonder team, and they played a system called the uh, the Austrian Whirl, which was very much like an interchanging of positions, and you can see the total football development from there. And Jimmy Hogan then went to work with uh, Sebesh, uh, the Magical Magyars, Puskas, Hidiguti, um, and there, so you, this this is what this guy was sort of preaching this doctrine of of his of his football as a British coach, but very much not. An orthodox British coach, and there was other people there. Jesse Carver um, was in uh, Holland for a time. He coached three or four clubs in in Italy as well. Um, so there's a lot of, of um, they were looked on as, as outliers in British football. Couldn't get a job. Um, even when, when when Jimmy Hogan went back to the UK, he ended up working uh, coaching the Aston Villa youth team. And when Hungary came to England to Wembley in 1953. Jimmy Hogan, the, the Hungarians were expecting Jimmy Hogan to be a guest of honour. He was there sitting in the stands with a load of Aston Villa kids watching the Hungarians play. But this is how, we you know, the British football orthodoxy didn't appreciate the skills that these guys had. And if they had, total football could have been born in the UK because all the coaches taught it, or well, most the coaches that preached it, were British. Yeah, that, 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 that really surprised me, the, the influence that the British had. I think it was right up to the IX, it was right up to the 50s, then towards the 60s that they, yeah. they, they had British coaches. They very much did. And the guy before uh, Mickles, um, Vic Buckingham, had uh, 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 two spells with with Ajax. Um, first spell, he won the, the, um, the Eredivisie and got them into the um, European Cup and gave Cruyff his debut. Uh, but he got he got he went back, he went to Sheffield Wednesday and then got the sack from there and went back to Ajax afterwards. And um, he when he left, Mikkels took over. So that was early sixties. Even then, into the early sixties, um, an English coach was was in charge of um, of Ajax. Yeah, that, that really shocked me. And and the the fact that they only turned professional in the fifties and and even in the sixties, they were sort of a, it was only a sort of a kid on professional that they were doing. Yeah, it, it's it very much the case. I mean, I can't 
I always get this backwards. I can never remember which one it was, whether it was Kaiser was either first and Cruyff the second, or it was the other way around. I can't remember. Um, but even when they were professionals, uh, Pete Kaiser, for example, used to own a tobacconist in Amsterdam because he couldn't earn enough money playing football to, to, to sort of live on. Cruyff uh, used to work at um, uh, a sports magazine um, shop, printing shop, printing shop, and also worked in a, in a, in a driver's store, which is a World Company North book of the, his biography. But they, as you say, they were professionally named, but very much not in the amount of money they were paid. It was only when Mickles came in and wanted to sort of start a bit of a revolution at the club. You know, I wanted to train two, twice a day and, you know, and pro properly turn and be dedicated. But you can't do this if you're going to pay them peanuts. So it was him who got the club to increase the wages to make them proper professional players and didn't he get the rewards out of it. Yeah, I quite laughed at the idea that you, you mentioned that Meagles brought in cross-country cross running as well. And I quite laughed yeah. at that, that crowd doing a cross-country. Certainly didn't like that, did he? He didn't like it. No, he didn't like it. It was, it was like at school where, you know, the kid, they're laying back and waiting wait to catch you up on the second lap and pretend he's done two laps with them. And he, he was never a great fan of the um, the physical exercise, very much training with a ball. That was Cruyff's thing. And uh, But, yeah, I mean, it, it, that professionalism and the fitness that uh, Mickles demanded uh, from the club is, um, was very much the, um, the thing that triggered um um, I access success. One thing I've got to mention when we talk about British culture, perhaps the most influential British culture pre Mickles, was a guy called Jack Reynolds. And Jack Reynolds was uh, when it spent about 30 years at Ajax in two or three different spells and was the father of Ajax, really, the, 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 the success they had. Um, I spoke to a guy called Menor Pot, who was very, you probably know Menor Pot over in, in Netherlands, is an Ajax. Um, aficionado and he's got his own uh, um, podcast there called Branya. It's called Swagger in English. Is Branya the pronunciation? I think it's called Branya. Yeah, I think it's called Branya. Anyway, and he was saying about because um, Reynolds was um, he's the guy who sort of developed the system of um, all teams at the club, be youth team to the first team and into all intermediates all play the same system, they all play the same way. So the graduation through the systems was smooth. And this is what Cruyff took to Barcelona. And to this day, Barcelona still have the same system, that all the, the lesser teams, the younger teams play the same system. And Jack Reynolds, um, at the uh, at the, um, the at their old stadium at Demir, had a stand named after him. And now at the, at the, the young Cruyff Arena, as it's called now in Amsterdam, um, there's a, a the VIP lobby is named after Jack Reynolds, and there's a plaque on the wall in there to this day. They're remembering the, and Menno says that the, the Ajax fans still call him Uncle Jack, Uncle Jack, because of the uh, the things he did for them. So yeah, just so I slipped my mind about the English influence. In, and Jack Reynolds is probably the key the key guy ahead of um, ahead of Mickles arriving in the early sixties. Well, I, I think actually Reynolds had longer. As, as, as manager of Ajax than Mikkels did? Oh, yeah, very much so. I mean, Mikkels was only manager for about seven or eight years. Um, uh, um, he left after the 71 uh, European Cup triumph, um, whereas, um, as I say, uh, Jack Reynolds was probably manager there for about 30 years, so very much. In fact, at the time between Ajax and a professional, 
and Nichols arriving was about, uh, the, the numbers were in the book, so you have to forgive me if I'm better right here, then there were about 48 years or something like that. And for most of that time, 35 or so, those 40 odd years, Ajax were coached by British British coaches. There was, I think it was one Irish guy and a couple of Scots and, uh, and English guys. Yeah, that was, yeah I, was, I was really, really astonished, astonished to hear that. Do you think that Ajax at that time just took advantage of other teams being unfit? They got so fit. Yeah, I think that was the gap um, that that Reynolds Reynolds closed by because um, they were very, quite successful um, under Reynolds uh, in in domestic terms, not in European terms, but in domestic terms, they won won a few championships. And Mikkels then picked it up and took it on further because they they were then becoming the more dominant team. And it was only when um, Ernst Happel went to Feyenoord afterwards that there's a guy called Jan Peters, I think it was Jan Peters, Peters anyway, uh, who'd won. Peters yet had won Feyenoord uh, the, the, the trophy, the title, but Feyenoord wanted to compete in in the European Cup, and that put Happel was a better proposition. He just because um, he, he beats uh, Ajax in the um, KNBB Cup when he was at Saint-Denis. I might be wrong, but one of the smaller Dutch teams, one of the smaller Dutch clubs, and he got him his he got him the job at Feyenoord, and of course then Feyenoord went on to do what Mikkels had been. Uh, striving for for Ajax for three or four years after they sort of become dominant force in Dutch football, and he won the European Cup at his first attempt with Feyenoord. Yeah, yeah, that was a a very good one. We we, we enjoyed that one. Uh, I bet you did. I bet you did. I bet there was a few blue, white, and red scarves waving as well. Yeah, <laughs> um, I, I, I'm going to. You you brought up in your book a story which actually sort of blends in with the Rangers at the moment. And that's a, a player called Dick Van Dyke. Now, that's probably a lot of, of people will be laughing at the moment. Dick Van Dyke, did he not play with Lucille Ball in an American <laughs> soap? Uh, but this, is, this is honestly true. A player, Dick Van Dyke, he was a striker for 20 Shader at that time. Yeah, yeah. And there was talk of him moving to Ajax. Uh, but Twente didn't let him go, I believe, at that time. And it's just packed in playing. Didn't pack in playing, but he just didn't try. Now, we've got this the same thing happening with a player called Glenn Kamara at the moment. Uh, Kent done that. Ryan Kent done virtually the same. And Morella's done the same, exactly the same for us. It's sort of a just the last season, just stopped playing. Now, you've got a theory on your, in your book, and I'll let you tell it because I don't, I, I, I won't uh, go through it. I'll, I'll let you tell it. You've got a theory in your book of something that could have changed the whole thing of Feyenoord winning, beating Celtic that day, and something else could have happened. Yeah, it, it's a weird one. I, I, I stumbled this story from a guy who I know, a uh, Dutch um, football journalist, and he told me the story. And I, well, I mean, I, I, I didn't want to sort of take credit for the story myself. So I quoted him telling me the story, and uh, uh, when he was at uh, Van Dyke was at uh, Twente, uh, they were, I think they were top of the league for a long time, and uh, they um, Ajax moved to sign him, and they agreed to sell him, but then he wanted to go straight away, which was about I don't know, three or four months from the end of the season, and uh, basically Twente wanted to obviously try and lock out the league, and uh, he's he sort of. The story goes, the story goes is that he sort of sulked a little bit. And although being 
very prolific all the way through this season. His sort of goals dried up and Twente fell away and Feyenoord uh, won the league and went on to win the European Cup. And if that's and if he hadn't have done the, um, he'd just pressed on and kept the same form throughout the season, then perhaps they, that wouldn't have happened. But I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, it's I always feel like this thing's a bit weird. I mean, you know, you mentioned about Glenn Kamara, and you know, if if there's a club want to sign this guy, you're thinking, well, is this the sort of attitude I want? I mean, I remember the guy at um, Chelsea, uh, Khalid Gulruz, Dutch defender, and he went to Chelsea and oh, I never played, didn't want to know. And you just think, well, you know, if I'm looking at prospective players, is this the sort of character that I'm looking for? Which makes me sort of have, have doubts of whether, whether, you know, um, the theory about Van Dyke pulling, pulling a pug is true. Um, form comes, form goes, and it's difficult to save goal scorers because, you know, you, you, can go, you can score five in a game and you can go six games without scoring. So I don't know. But Keith Rivers, the, the, the with the coach of Feyenoord, uh, sorry, of uh, Twente at the time, I think it was Keith Rivers anyway, um, in his book, which was written by, well, his book written by his, his granddaughter, I think it was, was certainly of the opinion that that was the case, but who can say? But as you say, you know, if things have been different, you know, the outcome of the European Cup that uh, following season with Feyenoord would have been very different because Feyenoord would have been in it. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm, I'm amazed that you were mentioning the, the boy from the Dutch guy from for uh, the play for Chelsea. Uh, his name sort of left me just now. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. What is... Khalid Bouleroos. Okay. Um, that, but that was... The, it was on 40000 a week. I don't know if we were talking about the same one, 40,000 a week. I, 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 I don't know about the money, but it was on a lot of money. We paid a lot of money for it. He played a few games, but not very many. I think he played in the, in the 2010 World Cup one. That, I don't know that one. No, I, I, played, I, I, yeah, I know he played for only four games. Yeah. And it was even he, he turned up in his bass slippers to, uh, to, to train and sat with, 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 with a robe on. He's sort of a, a night robe or morning robe or whatever you want to call it, and and his bass slippers and just sat and watched the training because he just said, "Well, oh, they won't let me train." So that that was it. Yeah, he's just, he, he's just... he ended up getting millions, and that he said that as well. So I read a, I read a piece about him uh, not so long ago, and he said, "Why why should I have left? They they had promised me that money. Why should I have left?" And it was at the time they didn't have a lot of money either because the, the, the Russian guy wasn't involved at that time either. So they were just off their, their own money. Anyway, I'll move, 
I'll move back onto your 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 own book. Now, I was going to try and and, and sort of a uh, give you a question that that you didn't have in your book, but Go then on. I kept reading, kept no, I kept reading and kept reading, and there was a point I was going to have popped up in your book, and it's a a, a, a reporter called Johan Dirksen. Now he's been a sort of a, a bad guy with Rangers as well because he's had a few run-ins with Rangers, uh, saying things that, that Rangers supporters didn't like. And he has got a story that it supposedly got from Van Hanicom. And the story goes that uh, for the Dutch team it was mostly that uh, he came into, Michels came into the dressing room and he would say, OK, guys, here's the way we're going to play today. We'll go here, we'll play these tactics, we'll do this tactics, we'll do this and we'll do that. And then he would walk out the door again and Johan Krauf and, and Van Hanicom would turn around and say, Listen, guys, just forget what he's saying. Uh, we'll do it this way. And that's uh, that's the way. So it was actually Krauf that was in uh, Fanaticum that was running the, the show. It's a classic It's a classic story. Um, I don't know about the Dutch one. I didn't know about that one. But certainly with uh, Ajax, Kaiser, Pete Kaiser, said very much the same thing that uh, Mikkels would say, yeah, this is we're going to do this and this and that and the other. And it, says, it said as soon as Mikkels wore out, Krauf said, stuff, forget that. This is what we're going to do. Now, Cruyff always says, has said that uh, uh, Mikkels runs the team off the pitch and I run the team on the pitch. I say it wasn't a shy, it wasn't sort of shy about saying, um, you know, that's that's he, he on the on, on the field of play, his his call was what counted. And uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I didn't know about the, the Van Hannigan and the Dutch thing, but it, set up, it certainly rings true because the, uh, Kaiser said very much the same thing about when they were playing for Ajax. Yeah. <coughs> One of the, the, the things as well is the, the, the Dutch coach, Kovac, is it, I think you call him? Kovac, he's uh, reminding Yeah. Um, the amount of smoking he did, you sort of uh, keep bringing it up in the book. I don't I'm think sorry, you would get away with that these days. The, it, the amount was... of smoking, the cigarettes and... and oh, yeah, sorry, yeah. yeah, well, I mean, that was that was seen as quite sort of normal in those days, of course. I mean, Cruyff was a, you know, a serial cigarette smoker and you know, eventually, you know, lung cancer... Sort of killed him, and uh, yeah, it was sort of very much deemed part of the uh, part of the furniture in those days. And Kovacs, when Kovacs took over, because Mickles was very much a disciplinarian, ex sort of school teacher, um, at that sort of they used to call him the ball, it was very sort of dogmatic. And lots of players had different things about. I remember a piece of Barry Holsoff that said that you know, you go out to the restaurant with him and he'd be fine, and go out afterwards on the, the following day, the pitch, and he'd be calling you everything. Pete Kaiser hated him as well. Pete Kaiser apparently, when Mickles left in 1971 at the European Cup final, got on a table and danced when he heard the news that Mickles was leaving. But Kovacs is an entirely different character, very much um, uh, uh, the sort of anti-Mickles, as it were, uh, not a displayer at all, let the players have a lot more latitude, and they played so much with, with more freedom um, after uh, after um, Mickles left and, under Kovacs. And Cruyff says in Quoted in, in um, Jonathan Wilson's book, I think it's in, in Virgin Triangle, that they played better football under Kovacs, and I think that's undoubtedly the case. Um, Kovacs had sort of, he almost took the handbrake off. Um, you know, it took the reins off and let them run free. Away you go, guys. Let's let's run free and enjoy yourselves. And they were such a talented team that uh, that's that that's what they did. And in the end, that's when you when you're sort of running downhill, full speed, actually breaks. Eventually, you're going to hit a wall and. 
And that's what happened after 73 when Kovacs left and there was nobody there to sort of pick up the, the tab afterwards. The guy who took over, George Noble, was... That's what you need to talk about, you know, needing big feet for big shoes. This guy had not got any feet at all. Yeah. Yeah, that was that's what I was going to say. That freedom that they got... Yeah. Was that actually the beginning of the end that they, they, they started fighting amongst themselves? Yeah, it was very much the case. And, and Cruyff afterwards said um, that because um, Nichols, uh, sorry, um, Kovacs wasn't really into discipline, disciplining players, he had to do it. And he was sort of be becoming looked upon as the bad guy in the team. Now, that's Cruyff saying what Cruyff says, justifying his son. So, because, you know, nobody ever told Cruyff he had to be in charge. He, that would, that was always his, his God-given role, that he was always going to be the leader. Um, but yeah, the freedom they gave them was, you know, they were they were magnificent. And those, those, I mean, they're great on the Nichols, but even better for the next two years under um, the Kovacs. But that freedom eventually um, did was their downfall. Obviously, when Cruyff left after 73, um, you know, that was a major catastrophe as well. But if Ajax had invested the money they had, they had a world record fee for Cruyff. Um, but they didn't buy anybody. They, well, they signed Jan Mulder, um, who had been playing at um, Anderlecht, I think he was playing at. But he was such an injury-prone player that he, had, he didn't play the length, of, the amount of games that to, to make a, a really competitive difference. Um, and I remember when I was to, to recall about this, he said, you know, it was, it felt like the, the first brick out of the wall was going to collapse afterwards and Cruyff left because they'd never even invested the money to buy anybody else to replace him. And players cut fell away afterwards and Barry Hall suffered that terrible knee injury um, and players sort of drifted away uh, and it, it sort of sparked, retired um, and it just fell away and they, they were so great. What what, what made them great? Um, I, there's, a, there's a guy called Steve, um, Stephen Scrag who is a colleague of mine at these football times and he, 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 he wrote a piece for Legacy for me in the book and there's a great line you got in there is that the only team that could just really dis, dis, defeat Ajax was Ajax, and they did. Yeah, yeah. Um, Jan Mulder, I think he's actually made more money out of television than, he, than they would ever made on the on the football field because he was mm. up until recently one of the the sort of a biggest pundits on the television. Another name I mentioned, Johan Dixon, uh, Dixon. He has just signed a millions contract for. He does a, a a TV show now. Started off as a football show. And now it's even moved on to politics, and uh, so he's one of the biggest, uh, richest paid uh, people on on television in Holland at the moment. Um, just to, I've got another. Do you think in this modern day total football, modern total football, could Crowe smoking as many as he did a day have kept up with the players that are around today? No, this high intensity. I mean I don't. I mean, no. Is your short answer? But I don't think in, you know, any any player nowadays would be able to would be allowed to smell about crutches to smell. I mean, it, it, I just it, it, it's it's always a fascinating question looking across years, and you know, people say, well, you know, would 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 at the Ajax team of seventies be competitive, and you know, fifty years down there because it's fifty years. Twenty twenty three is fifty years after their their third trophy, which was in nineteen seventy three. Um, and to my to my, I always has the answer is. Is, is yes, if they have the same training, same coaching, then yes. I mean, you look at the pitches they played in those days. I mean, the, the, yes, yes, they play, I mean, mud around the ankles, they still so play wonderful football. So, you know, you can play on those pitches, you can play on anything. So, yeah, that the talent was, was there and it is transferable. But the fitness levels, even 
you know, after Mickles and Wyatt and enhance the situation. There's nothing like it is today. Nothing, not even close. You know, they're, they're, these are these are like they're like thoroughbred athletes today. The top top footballers in the world today. They're so that's that's the massive major difference. I mean, you know, you put them on the pitch now against a modern team and they get slaughtered purely because of fitness. But if they had that same fitness regime, same coaching regime, same um, opportunity to sort of concentrate on the game more, they would certainly be competitive for sure. Yeah, the, the, the thing is, would, would they have got the time that they, 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 they had then? Would they have got that time on the ball today? I, so that, that's, that's a sort of a... It's interesting, you know, I, I, had, I was interviewed by a guy in, um, in the Daily Mail over here just before the European Cup final. And he wanted to know about the uh, the links between Ajax, Cruyff, and Pep Guardiola, because uh, Guardiola played under Cruyff at Barcelona and as part of uh, Cruyff's dream team. And you look at the, the sort of um, like a family tree almost going on from uh, from from the, from Ajax and Mikkels and Kovacs and through Cruyff, Guardiola, and then even Guardiola beyond that, you've got people like Vincent Company. Um, uh, Kuman uh, also played under under uh, Cruyff, so you've got you know that, that coaching tree still goes. So the thing with total football is, it's not a thing that you can put in a box and close the box. Over the years, over the the tens, twenties, thirty, forty, fifty years, the decades since it started being played, it's developed, it's developed, it's developed. So the top, I mean, it's certainly arguable that the Manchester City team under Guardiola and perhaps. Liverpool and the club to some extent as well, play a kind of total football that you can see the DNA from the Ajax teams in the 70s. And it's probably one of the few um, doctrines in football, one of the few tactical innovations that has sort of persisted and grown and not, not persisted, it's flourished and blossomed and developed as, as the years have gone, gone by. Yeah, well, even, uh, even now, the Ajax Academy is, uh, is, is sort of a Noted as one of the best in the world. Um, I've got to go on to Rangers. Okay. For a, for a minute. Okay. The Super Cup, 1973, yes. January 1973. I was at the first game at Ibrox. Wow. I just, I just absolutely came away in awe of the, the, the players that day, especially Crowe. Crowe uh, ran that game. And, yeah... I was looking at the the Rangers team that day. Uh, I'll, I'll say it out because a lot of obviously the listeners will be Rangers supporters. It was McCoy, Jardin, Derek Johnson, Dave Smith, Willie Matheson, John Gregg, Tom Forsyth, Alec McDonald, Alfie Con, Caroline, and Quinton Young. I, I was actually surprised that Quinton Young was playing because it was non non. I would expect normally Willie Johnson. To be to be there, sure. um, for me it was a, a a sort of a really defensive team. It was more a Rangers team that were going out to stop the Dutch football than than going to, to actually try to beat them. Yeah, yeah, it, it's a fascinating fascinating um, period. This is because um, the idea of Super Cup, so the European Cup winners playing the Cup winners, Cup winners, um, came about. I think the Dutch guy approached UEFA. UEFA wanted to do it, but the problem was that Rangers were, were under a ban from UEFA sanctioned games for one year because of some crowd trouble. 
So they couldn't actually play that that game as a European Super Cup game. So they played it uh, to celebrate Rangers' centenary. Although it was a first unofficial Super Cup, it didn't have that badge until the following year. Um, But to go to the game itself, um, yeah, it was quite uh, a sort of a a defensive setup for for Rangers. But in the second game in Amsterdam, Rangers gave gave um, Ajax. I mean, I, I, wrote, I remember writing this in the book. Uh, I read reports and I spoke to a couple of guys who had, had been at the game. Um, and Rangers really gave gave Ajax a difficult game in Amsterdam. They were proper um, determined not to sort of, you know, go. But they were going to go out of the shields. They weren't going to sort of uh, die in the hole. They proper gave it everything they got, and they, they played really well in Amsterdam. Probably better than they played at Ibrox, perhaps because the pressure was off and they had a bit more. A bit less to lose, shall we say? But in, and they played really well. When I say that game, but I can't remember who it was who scored a cracking first goal from outside the area. Um, I can't remember which which player it was now. But to, to go one, uh, McDonald scored, yeah. and uh, who was the other one that scored? I'm trying to think. I, I think, think it was Parley. Was a Parley? Was it a winger? The wind, the wind has scored it. throw in the camp, the post, and he scored in the header. But the first goal was a brilliant, a brilliant shot. And uh, as I say, that Rangers gave, gave um, Ajax all, all the game they could possibly want. Yeah. The Rangers supporters will be shitting, screaming at me now, saying, you should know that. Anyway, <laughs> the, the Dutch team that day was, uh, was, was Stoy, Schurbeer, Blankenberg, Hulsov, Troll, Han, Arno Muren, Harry Murwin. Rep, Grauf, and Kaiser. And and, team, uh, that's uh, that was a, a, a great team. Uh, um, see, the, the other thing I was going to ask you about, and I'm going to cut, dim my camera for a minute to put on a light, um, but I'll, I will be listening. Um, the other question I was going to ask you, nowadays we've got five sub substitutes. In the days, we only had two. Will that help in total football, do you think? Uh, Will we get real total football? That's a really good question, mate. That's a really good question. Uh, I think that the demands of total football are so uh, the fitness, the ability to change positions, to cover for players, to sink deeper and sort of play in different ways. It's quite exhausting. And I remember I spoke to uh, I spoke to Rip Kroll about the 1973 final and he was playing Belgrade against uh, Newberg and Juventus. Uh, Rep scored a goal in about five minutes, and uh, the game, the rest of the game, was a very sort of walking pace, very much the case. And uh, he said that it's because it was so hot, and Dutch, the Dutch weren't used to it. And it's playing uh, top four, but it's quite physically demanding. So yeah, I think if you had, especially if you had the talent and the talented players, because both under Mikkels and under Kovacs, there was a very tight squad of regular players perhaps a dozen, 13 players. And there was other players who came and played one or two games, perhaps three games across a season uh, in competitive games because they played a lot of friendlies in those days to raise money. Um, but, yeah, I think I think yeah, it would have made a difference if they had the talent. But I suppose I didn't have that drive to have a larger squad because there wasn't that need because they were only playing with, you know, with two subs anyway. But, that's yeah, it's a good point. I think it would make a difference. Yeah, it would help because you could... Um, there's a famous occasion in the 1970 World Cup final, well, it's one of the finals, when Italy had the two players who were both sort of competing for the number 10 role, and it was Gianni Rivera, who played for um, uh, 
uh, Inter. Uh, sorry, played for Milan, and he just won the uh, the gold, the uh, Ballon d'Or. And there was uh, uh, Capella who played for um, not Capella. To, to come back to me a second, sorry, the amount of Mazzola who played for Inter, and they both had the same sort of game. And uh, the coach decided that he would play because he had the ability for the substitutions to play Mazzola in the first half, run yourself ragged, son. You're coming off at half time, and play Rivera on the second half, and more attacking player when players were sort of uh, tiring. So, yeah, so there's a guy who used that substitution to keep this sort of thing on. So, yeah, I think I think you're probably right. It's a good call, mate. Yeah, I've got. Uh, a question now, uh, it's not not to to do with it's more to do with the Dutch team. Nineteen seventy four, Krauf refused to go. Would would Holland have won it with with Krauf in the team? You mean seventy eight? He refused to go in seventy eight. Oh, was it seventy eight? Sorry, when yeah, they played that's, that's, that's an hotel okay. Um, yeah, uh, it did. Uh, it was it was an interesting situation. Um, there was a guy oh, you probably uh, uh, be aware of the reason they didn't go. He basically was playing at Barcelona at the time, and he had a his house was um, attacked, attempted kidnapping, yeah. and he refused to go afterwards. Uh, it's, uh, I mean, would he? He would have made a difference. There's no doubt about that. It would have made a difference. The question is, would he have made the difference? Um, because the players they had to play a different way, and um, Happel was sort of coaching there, but. Sort of, in the background there was this simmering, simmering sort of problem with a guy called Jans Vodkreis, who had taken the team over and actually got them qualified for the tournament. And he'd been sort of sidelined and there was a little bit of friction between the two. And, and uh, Svartkreis wanted Rensenbrink to play in the Cruyff role. Well, Rensenbrink, I mean, Cruyff was, you know, a, you couldn't have a bigger ego than Cruyff if you tried, you know. But Rensenbrink was a very different player much more understated and didn't really want to do it and so they played that they, they played a non cruyff system um so it was a different team in 78 the 78 team was probably not as good as the team in 74 and yet strange enough they came closer 74 was a, a generational team um they still had some great players the other the, the problem when cruyff didn't go because the other player who wouldn't go was van hannigan he duck tails as well and Van Hannigan played for Happel at Feyenoord, um, so he was like, he was like, um, Mick, like Mickles was to Cruyff, um, Van Hannigan was to Happel, and he he didn't go for I mean a real weird reason. I say weird reason. He was a man of massive man of principle. Van Van Hannigan um, in '74, all the bonuses from commercial activities that the, the the team earned went into a pot, and everybody got a, got an equal share. Whether you were the star player or you were the guy who cleaned the boots, you know, all got a share of it. In '78, some of the players didn't want to do it, and Van Hannigan kicked off about it and said, "You know, this is not, this isn't the way we do things." Um, and he made the, the statement that um, if if the guy who cleans my boots don't turn up, I've got to clean them myself. So why shouldn't he get a cut? But some of the players wanted to go their own way, and so he sort of he, he backed out. So they weren't any short of Cruyff; they were short of Van Hannigan as well. So the two massive creative players in the middle of the park were absent. If they both would have gone, I think it might, would have made no difference, yeah. Because they said, I mean, let's go back to the final analysis. Final analysis, they were the, that far, that far, quarter of an inch of winning, from winning the World Cup and when Renson Brink hit the post in the last minute. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I think with Crowth and Van Harrigham, the, I think they would have, they probably would have won it. I, I've always thought that, not just because I'm hearing it now. Yeah. Um, uh, well, uh, I, I think I've virtually went through everything that I've sort of. I, I said, I said uh, half an hour to to to, to forty five minutes. So, so that's uh, that we went past that. I've really enjoyed your knowledge. I take my my hat off to your knowledge. And uh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed the book. Thank you. I would, I would, do you know what the, what the book brought to me, actually? See, when I was reading it, I wanted to use the facts to go onto YouTube and actually dig up what you had what you had found out and watch it. And that, that, that's what sort of a... Plus all the, 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 small, the, the small bits, of the, like the, the, the boy from Twente, Dick Van Dyke from Twente, and... Another one thing that, that I, I really enjoyed was why Johan Krauf played with number 14. I, I thought oh, that was there. Do you, do you know, Dave, this is a brilliant story and and it's one of those things where you read and you think, I just hope that's true. And I'll just tell, I'll tell the story. I'll just tell the story briefly. Yeah, I'll you go. Yeah. Well, Krauf had been injured um, uh, for, for a while and uh, while he was, Krauf used to play away number nine. And where Krauf, while Krauf was away, Jerry Mearan wore number nine. And when they he came back into the team after the injury, he was out for weeks, a number of weeks. Um, Mearan handed him the shirt, number nine shirt back, and said, No, this is yours. And Crow said, No, 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 you can wear it. I'll wear something else. And he dipped his hand into a pile of shirts on the table and picked one out, and it was number 14. And he wore that shirt that day and that and has ever since. And it was always a story. I, I, I hope it's true. And I managed to talk to Orc Cock a while ago where I say he wrote Crow's biography. And I asked him about it. I said, you know, t- tell me, Orc, is, is it true? And he says, it is, it's a true story. And he spoke to people who were there at the time. And he's, it is definitely a true story is how Crow's got number 14. Uh, it's, it's a brilliant little story. And, you know, I, 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 it, it, I, I was so delighted. I, if, if Orc had said, nah, it's only a legend, it's not true. I'm so disappointed, but it's it's a great story. So yeah, that's that's how Cruyff got number fourteen, and uh, was was always known as the Eternal Fourteen. Yeah, I think he actually said later that numbers don't mean anything to him. No, it's, it's, the way, it's the way you play football. The only the only numbers that meant anything to you and Cruyff were his were his wages, his salary, his money. That was the that's yeah. somebody else who said to me. Cruyff never worried about numbers; he wasn't interested except for his payments. Yeah, yeah, well. He, in the early days, he wouldn't have made much selling selling magazines uh, on the street, so he, he, he couldn't have been earning much as a football player. Anyway, I'll give you. I don't. I don't know whether there's anything you want to to add. Uh, I'll also give you the chance to tell us where you we can get in touch with you, where they can order your books, or who and what and why. Okay, well, firstly, I'll just like to say thanks, mate. It'd be great. And time flies when you talk about football. You know, it's, it's been a wonderful chat. So thank you for that. Um, yeah, the book. Um, it's called uh, Dutch Masters, how I had his total football conquered Europe. It's available on on, um, on Amazon. You can find it by just type, typing my name in. That's Gary Thacker, G-A-R-Y-T-H-A-C-K-E-R. You can also get me on uh, on um, Twitter. Um, I'm on Twitter at all underscore blue underscore days. That's D-A-Z-E. And uh, I've got links to my diff- all my different books on there as well. So... I always anybody wants to jump jump on Twitter, give me a follow. I always follow back, so um, then you'll see the, the the things I'm talking about, about Dutch football and and many other aspects of the game. So yeah, thanks for that, mate. 
Yeah, no problem. It's great having you on. I, I, I'm going to be honest with you, it's the first time I've done an interview like this, so I was really nervous and I was thinking, I hope I, hope I can last 20 minutes, but obviously <laughs> when you get talking, then, uh, then then things become easier and uh, it's, yes. it's, it's great talking about football. So, oh, you're right. Well, we've, we've, we've had a podcast where you do, just like talking talking down the, about, about football down, your, down the pub with your mates over a couple of points. Well, what could be better? Yeah, that's it. That that's the way the the Gallon few are as well. Just we're just mates that that love talking about Rangers. Where you you talk about uh, football in general, and as I say, Brilliant. your knowledge of football is absolutely tremendous. I, I can't remember even uh, even few things. Never mind the the amount you've got in your head. <laughs> you must have a tape recorder or something in there. Yeah, years of practice, <laughs> years of practice, and copious notes. <laughs> yeah, and, and reading books. I think you must be a big yeah. reader of books. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 very much so. Well, thanks for coming on, and I'm, I'm going to finish off now. Uh, obviously, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed this interview, and hope that you'll go out and, and buy the book uh, because it's it's worth reading. And as I said, it's not just the reading, but you can it's the you can get ideas to have a look at the some of the things that are in the book because there's absolutely some brilliant films that I, I watched that uh, Gary had put down in the book. So please go out and buy it. And I'll, I'll see you. I believe we're on. and We're on a Sunday, but I don't think I'm on. So we'll see you when I, whenever I'm bound again. Bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 